Well, good to see everyone. Hey, what do you think of our new location? Isn't this beautiful? Wow. And it's cozy, you know, so we, we can have fellowship again. And uh, I love what Erlene and her team did, the welcome back balloons, because we, we lost that sense of fellowship and, you know, just the gathering around food and uh, getting, getting better acquainted and loving each other. And this kind of puts us back in that mode again. We do have, for those of you standing, we do have tables, one over here and one there. What a wonderful problem to have to set up more, more tables. So praise God for that. Well, we're going to get started. Uh, let me just do a little bit of housekeeping for you. If you need to use the restroom, there's one restroom in this building. Now that makes everybody nervous. I shouldn't have said it. I should have just left off it. But if you go down the hallway and then turn to the left in that little hallway right there, there's a restroom. Um, if you want coffee and such, we've got all that up here at the table. And uh, once we start teaching, we kind of move away from the food thing. But if you need food, if you haven't eaten, grab something. Feel free to go even now. Um, I, I'm excited. Before you leave tonight, let's see, it's 6.30, 7.30. It should still be, there should be some light before you go home. So I would encourage you to walk around the corner of the building, the north side, and go and you'll see a little uh, covering, an area that's covered outside. And then beyond that, if you walk to the other side of it, you see a courtyard. That's where we're going to have our communion and our Good Friday service. So just kind of get a feel for it. I'm very excited about that. And the leaders at uh, Church of Christ are going to join us, along with the, the, the members of their church, are going to join us for Good Friday. So that's exciting, too. All right, well, we're going to get started. I want to welcome and thank each of you for being here. And it's always good to come together as the body and see each other. And uh, uh, this is a beautiful setting. I'm excited. We're starting into the First Kings. We finished up First and Second Samuel. And of course, First and Second Samuel took us to really the end of David's life. Uh, he is still alive at the beginning of First Kings, but He's about to, to go see the Lord, and uh, so that's where we pick it up tonight. Let's pray. Father, tonight it's a joy, it's glorious to be together as the body, to fellowship together, to, to sit together, to open our Bibles and study the Word of God. And we are thankful tonight, Lord, that you have called the church to come together, to have fellowship, to worship the Lord together. And, and there's something about that corporate setting of worship. And so tonight, we worship you through the study of your word. Give a subjective thought, word, challenge to every single one of us. And what one needs, another doesn't. But each of us has a need tonight, and that's the work of the Spirit, to subjectively challenge us and grow us to be conformed to the image of Jesus. We thank you now, and we ask that, Holy Spirit, you will illuminate our hearts and bring inspiration into this room among your people. Amen. All right. Well, tonight uh, I would like to spend uh, a little bit of time in an introduction to 1 Kings, and then hopefully we'll get through a good portion of chapter 1. So let's get started. The title is First and Second Kings. At least that's what you're English translation says, but did you know that in the original Hebrew, 
That's not what it says. It was actually kings. That's it. Both. Old, or the first and second, it was just kings. They were both together. And then the Greek translation of the Old Testament came along, and that would be the Septuagint. There were supposedly 70 Hebrew scholars who came together and translated the Old Testament Hebrew into Greek because at that particular time, that was the language that the people were speaking because of the Greek empire. And so then, following that, uh, quite a few uh, hundred years later, it was the Vulgate. It was the Latin Vulgate that shows up, and it's translated into Latin. Uh, it started, some were translating, literally just writing out in Latin from the Greek, they were writing out the Word of God. Nobody completed it. Nobody did a thorough job of covering the whole Old and New Testament. But that started around 200 A.D. But it was completed by Jerome right around 400 A.D. So just kind of giving you a little background. If I can go just a step further in that as a side note, the English translations, uh, there's evidence that in the British Isles, the English Bible was not Bible, but it was being translated into English among the missionaries. And that would have been around a thousand years after Christ. In the British Isles, Christians were showing up, missionaries were making an impact, and they were taking the Greek and the Latin, and they were, it would have been Latin at that time, and they were translating it into English. But really, it wasn't until 1380 that John Wycliffe, translated the entire Bible into an English translation. He did more than just translate. He stood on the truth of God's Word. And those who followed after him, like John Hus, the goose, and then Martin Luther, who was influenced by John Hus, who was influenced by Wycliffe. And those guys stood on truth, and the English Bible really took off. Uh, but the original Hebrew text is titled the Kings. And more modern Hebrew Bibles, the ones that the Hebrew, uh, the Jews would use today, the, the, the believing Jews, uh, they would use something that had Hebrew, but they would title it Kings A and Kings B because it's the same. It's just that they've, they've sectioned it like we do. The Latin Vulgate connected Kings with the book of Samuel, and they titled it the third and fourth books of kingdoms, or the third and fourth book of kings. So they see 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings. It's all really a continuation of the chronology of the kings of both Israel and of Judah. So author and date of this book, 1 Kings, uh, Jewish tradition says that Jeremiah wrote kings, but nobody can prove that. It's plausible that possibly he did write it. However, the events at the end of 2 Kings happen after him. So that's why most would not agree that he wrote the Kings. It's an author who is unknown, probably a prophet, because this book towards the end really begins to open the door and you begin to see some of the prophets as Israel is taken off into exile. That was a prophecy that was given a hundred years before it happened. So we really don't know for sure who the author of First, King, First and Second Kings is. Uh, it was written between 
561 B.C. and 538 B.C. It's very clear that the author used a variety of sources in compiling this work, this book, including the book of the Acts of Solomon. So some of what Solomon has written, the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel, also the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah, so First and Second Chronicles. Uh, so he used other sources in order to build First and Second Kings. Uh, also Isaiah chapter 36 uh, through chapter 39 verse 8 provides information used in two uh, uh, of, the, of the sources for kings. So it's really, it's the author who's inspired by the Holy Spirit who is writing the kings, but it's also other sources of the Bible that he draws into the kings. So all of it is inspired. Now, the sad reality uh, that history revealed was that all the kings of Israel and the majority of the kings of Judah did evil in the sight of the Lord. We're going to be studying a book where we see it before our eyes the apostasy of God's people. And it's because the kings led them into apostasy. These evil kings were apostates. Uh, because of the king's failure, the Lord sent his prophets to confront both the monarchs and the people with their sin and their need to return to him. Uh, because the message of the prophets was rejected by the people, uh, the prophets foretold that the nation would be carried into exile. And like every prophetic, a prophecy uttered by the prophets and kings, this word from the Lord came to pass. I mean, if, if it was a prophet of the Lord, it happened. What they said happened. When that prophet came on the scene and said, woe unto you, or thus saith the Lord, or blessed are you, you better believe it was going to come true. So, Kings is interpreted uh, uh, for the people by uh, whoever this author is. It's interesting. And we don't really know, but we know he's led of the Lord. And what the people did was they went into idolatry and God punished them. We're going to see that. There, there is, it is so good for us to be in, in the kings because of what's happening in America and what's happening in nations around the world. You want to get an insight from God's view of nations that turn from Him, that reject Him, that turn to idols over him. This is a perfect book for us to study at this time. We need to, by the way, we need to be very careful what we post on Facebook. I've read some of the posts of some of our people, and it, it, I, I cringe a little bit. I feel like we're influenced by other cultures. We're influenced by things that honestly don't hold weight in the Bible. And we need to think biblically. We need to think out of the character of God before we write, not thinking out of our own opinion. Man has his own way, but the Lord's way prevails. What we need to be projecting to the world is to turn to God, not criticizing and beating up the world because they're going in the wrong direction. We're not called to be the prophets, okay? There was a season and the prophets came and they spoke 
and God judged the people because of it. The Holy Spirit is now the one who convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, not us. Our role is to proclaim the truth of God's word to lost and dying people. You cannot do that unless you love them. So for us, the focus is to love those who are against us, who are against what we believe. Love them. Keep speaking the truth. Whether they want to hear it or not, lovingly proclaim the truth. You can, you can, you can lovingly disagree with them and say, well, I, I disagree. I respectfully disagree. I do, by the way, respect people. You could even be in a cult, and I could respect you if you have taken the Bible and in your own study, you've studied the Scripture, and you have falsely interpreted, otherwise it wouldn't be a cult, but if you have falsely interpreted, at least I can respect the fact that you tried to understand what you believe by the Word of God. I can respect that. Now, you're wrong, but I don't have to throw that in your face. I can respect the fact that you, you use the Bible to get where you are. And maybe I, then I can come along and help you in the things that you've misinterpreted in the Bible. So we need to always give people the opportunity to do what's right and to change. That's what the Spirit of God is about. That's why he's convicting them. Because he's trying to bring them to the end of their sin and into a relationship with God. Okay, enough said on that. Uh, four invading nations played a dominant role in the affairs of Israel and Judah uh, in the kings. Uh, this happened from 971 B.C. to 561 B.C. Uh, four nations that you're going to hear about quite a bit in the book of, in the book of Kings. Egypt in uh, the 10th century. Egypt impacted Israel's history during the reigns of Solomon and Rehoboam, and also Syria is a second one. Syria posed a great threat to Israel's security during the 9th century, okay? In the 9th century, I think, BC, uh, I think it was, uh, oh, I can't forget who the name was, uh, but they came in, and by the way, uh, the, the, you know, the, the Syrians are not the Assyrians. Syria and Assyria. They're different. Assyria would be the next nation that infringed, that came in and, and controlled uh, Israel and even attacked Judah. Okay? And then the last one uh, that we see is, the, is Babylon. And Babylon came in from 612 to 539 B.C. There were a few years there before the, between Syria and the Assyrians about 50 years where the people lived in peace because they had like a, a short temporary revival. But just like 9-11, everybody got real spiritual on the Sunday after 9-11, most of those folks had lost that, that, that fervor for God after just a few short weeks. And so it was not long-lived. Um, the historical and theological themes King's focus is on the history of the sons of Israel from 971 B.C. to 561 B.C. Now, it is interesting that the author arranged the material in a way that we follow the kings in both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. 
So this is the period of time when Israel, when Judah rather, is divided. And the northern kingdom is Israel, the southern kingdom is Judah. They both had their own sets of kings that, that served chronologically during this period of time. Uh, among the, the northern kingdom, Israel, not a single king respected, honored, worshipped the Lord. Every single king in the northern kingdom did evil in the sight of the Lord. In the southern kingdom, the vast majority rejected God and did evil in the sight of the Lord. But there were a few who were faithful to God. So Judah was not really as far into apostasy as, the nor as Israel in the, in the north. Okay? Now, it's interesting, too, about the kings from the author. He uses a pattern when he describes each king in the book. Every king is first introduced by name and in relation to his predecessor. Secondly, his date of ascent to the throne in relationship to the year of the contemporary ruler in other kingdoms. Thirdly, his age on coming to the throne, uh, and that is given only for the king, uh, kings of Judah, the southern kingdom. His length of reign, that's something else all the kings have. His place of reign. Uh, here's one, interesting. The author felt it was important to mention the name of his mother. But that was only for the kings of Judah as well. And then lastly, a spiritual appraisal of that king's reign. And of course, most of it was very ugly. Uh, there, were, there were not good things to say, not much commendation given. It was mostly complaints. Uh, this introduction is followed by a narration of the events that occurred during the reign of each king. Uh, the details of this narration varied widely. Each king is concluded with a citation of sources, also additional historical notes, also a notice of death, also a notice of burial, also the name of the successor, and in a few instances, the author gives a postscript about the king. So uh, the author's quite uh, thorough in his look at each and every king. That's what this particular time of history is about, and it's about how Israel followed these really ungodly kings into apostasy, okay? Uh, let me also share with you, uh, there are several themes that are stressed in this book that we're going to study. First, the Lord judged Israel and Judah because of their disobedience to His law. You're going to see that over and over again. The judgment of God, God is always just, always right in His judgments. So He has real reasons why He is judging them. And then secondly, the word of the true prophets came to pass. So you're going to see just as God judged those who were evil, you're going to see that the prophecies that were spoken are literally coming true right here before our eyes as we study. And then thirdly, the Lord remembered His promises to David. All the promises, and we'll cover those as we come into them, as we see the fulfillment, we're going to go back and say, okay, this was promised way back in 1 Samuel, or actually 2 Samuel. And we're going to see the beauty of that, just how God is faithful with His promises. We need to hear that tonight. Man, I, you know, we need to rely upon, hang on, the promises of God. The more we remind ourselves of the promises of God, the easier it is to face the trials in this life. Amen? Amen. 
Uh, now, let's get started into the Kings. That's enough of an intro. I noticed most of you didn't write anything down because I'm moving too quickly for you. Some of you were on it. Okay, here we go. Verse 1, Now King David was old and advanced in years, and although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. So David, obviously older, he is now experiencing a circulation issue. The blood's not circulating, flowing as it once did. He's getting cold, easy, and, uh, and so this is a real issue. Uh, these are his twilight years. I would love to say to you that David, who was, what? He was 70. For David, okay, let me explain that. He was 70 years old. Now, Bob, I'm going to say, I'm going to, say to you, <laughs> that's right, I'm going to say respectfully that David lived like four men. He lived a lot, his life, he, he covered a lot more miles than the years show. And he did. And it wore him down. And remember now, a lot of those miles, he was not relying on the Lord. He was an awful father. And that came out real quick. You're going to see it again tonight. That haunted him his whole life. He committed some grievous sins before God. So he, he, he wore out too soon. Is that okay, Bob, to say that? Okay, anyway, all right. So um, it says, Therefore his servants said to him, Let a young woman be sought for my lord the king. In this case, that young woman in the Hebrew is speaking of a virgin. And by the way, I'll just say it now before we read the whole verse, because some of you are going to just wander into what you think happened. This woman was a virgin even after David's death. Okay? So, uh, I'm not saying all of her life, but she was a virgin even after David's death. Now, let a, let a young woman be sought for my lord the king, and let her wait on the king and be in his service. Let her lie in your arms that my lord the king may be warm. There's a purpose behind it. So they sought for a beautiful young woman throughout all the territory of Israel and found Abishag, the, the Shunammite, and brought her to the king. Now that sounds really strange and even immoral to us, but not in that day. In that day, that was a common practice for somebody who was invalid, who was not able to get out. That was a way of getting warmth that they needed on their body. And uh, it's interesting what some of the, the uh, theologians have said as they've studied the old uh, practices and customs of the Hebrew in that period of time. And I'll mention just a couple things to you. But in that time period among kings, it's viewed as a proper allowance what made it proper, not in the eyes of God, but proper among the culture of Israel, was that he took her as a concubine. That's what supposedly made it proper. Now, I do not believe that God, at any point in time during David's life ever, said that having a concubine is, is right, is, is good, is proper. He also did never said that having more than one wife is proper or good. But it was the culture of Israel, okay? And David's participating in that. So it was actually recognized, get this, uh, one theologian said, 
who studies history, goes, very, goes way back into that period of time, it, it, rec it was recognized as a medical treatment. I can see that happening today. Well, honey, I'm getting older, I'm cold. Uh, medical treatment, I need a young lady to, are you kidding? Now, I gotta tell you, for me, that grosses me out, quite honestly, that I would not rely upon my wife for my comfort. That just, it just, it's weird to me. I can't wrap my brain around that. But, this, but, but in that day, in fact, that particular theologian said, look, look what it says, therefore his servants said to him. He said in the original Hebrew, it better reflects his physicians said to him. So literally, this was a medical treatment in that period of time. Doesn't make it right. That's just what we're dealing with back then, okay? These are the things that if you meet somebody who's just read enough of the Bible to be dangerous, and they've used it as a weapon not to be a believer, and they say, well, what about David? He had this young girl. God's good with that? And you can explain now. No, it doesn't say God's good. But in that day, that was a common practice. And David didn't always follow the Lord. That's the beauty of the Bible. It doesn't hide the ugly stuff. If it did, and all we saw were all the perfections of these people, we wouldn't have a chance. Because not a person in this room has been perfect. Amen? They're just like us. And God doesn't hide that. That's why we have grace. Thank God for grace. Amen. You cancel culture doesn't believe in grace today. God does. God redeems people. And we need to remember that. So, uh, it was actually recognized as a medical treatment in the ancient world, mentioned by the ancient Greek doctor Galen, G-A-L-E-N, if you want to do your homework. When Josephus described this in his Antiquities of the Jews, he said that this was a medical treatment, and he called the servants of the first of kings physicians. So it was proper in that culture because David likely made this young woman his concubine. One theologian said the physicians recommend, recommended Abishag thinking her beauty might engage David's affections and refresh his spirits and invite him to those embraces which might communicate some of her natural heal or heat to him as was de uh, designed. Crazy talk, in my opinion. Crazy talk, okay? A side note. There have always been those who took liberty to identify Abishag, the Shunammite, as the Shulamite, not Shunamite, Shulamite, addressed in the Song of Solomon. Remember the beauty of the, of the bride of Solomon? He talks about her, how beautiful she was, a Shulamite. And they say, no, it's all the same. It's possible that it's the same town. It doesn't say it's the same woman. It is plausible that here David is is using this girl as a medical treatment. Solomon sees her, and after his father's gone, he takes her as his wife. That is possible. The Bible doesn't say that, though. So where the Bible is gray, we shouldn't try to make it black and white. We just don't know, okay? We really don't know. Um, a side note, there have always been those who took liberty to identify this woman as uh, Solomon's wife, but... It says in verse 4, the young woman was very beautiful and she was of service to the king and attended to him, but the king 
knew her not. So in that sense, if Solomon did make her his wife, it's not like his father had been with her before. She uh, started ministering to David, and when David passed, she was still a virgin. She was still a virgin. But although she was probably part of David's harem, which is crazy to think about. One of the, well, the greatest king of Israel had a harem. He had many wives. That's the sad part of David's life. Verse 5, now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, Haggith is his mother. Remember now, the author, in, when he speaks of the kings of Judah, always mentions the mom. Okay? Uh, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. So he sees his dad in this invalid state, close to death. He goes ahead on his own and announces, I'm going to be the king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. So he's wanting to put out the image of a king. Is he the king? No, he is not. But if you put out an image of something that's not true and you do it often enough and long enough, people believe it. Do we know that today or not? Amen. Exactly. Okay. So Adonijah is exalting himself to the throne. In 2 Samuel, write this down, chapter 3, verse 2, it describes the sons of David and lists Adonijah as the fourth son. He is right behind Absalom. He and Absalom have the same mother, okay, Haggith. We know that two of the three sons older than Adonijah are already dead. That would be Amnon and Absalom. We suspect that the other older brother, Chiliab, either died or was unfit to rule because he's never mentioned after 2 Samuel 3.3. As the oldest living son of David, by many customs, Adonijah would be considered the heir to the throne, but the throne of Israel was not always filled by... Um, hereditary succession. succession. It just wasn't. Um, first king of Israel, who was it? Saul. Who was the second king? No hereditary succession. See, here's why. Because God is choosing the kings. He's not buying into this monarchy idea where once you are in the family, you're gonna, you have a chance to be the king. It's God's way. And oftentimes, God chose the wrong person. He allowed the wrong person to serve to make a point to Israel. I'm going to give them what they want. I'm going to let them make their own bed, and they have to now sleep in it. That was Saul. And then David, the next king, chose someone after his own heart. But even David drifted. Okay? So this idea that by hereditary succession, Adonijah should be the next king... That's just not true, okay? Uh, that's a good lesson for us here tonight. Never exalt yourself in any position. Do not exalt yourself. The Lord is the one who should exalt you. The Lord should exalt you. By the way, there will be men, there will be women who will tempt you to exalt yourself because they think you're the, you know, you're the most exciting thing since sliced bread. 
and they want you to serve. I just think you'll make a great blah, blah, whatever it is. Don't let man cause you to exalt yourself. You want to know what the Lord wants. Amen? That's it. When I was pastoring down in Palm Beach Gardens for 21 years, I, was, I started out as an associate pastor for two and a half years, and the senior pastor had decided to uh, go pursue his, his doctoral work, and the board came to me and said, Greg, would you serve for six months as an interim and just fill in the gap? And I said, I'll pray about it. I said, uh, but I don't know if I'm the right guy for that. So I prayed. I didn't sense the Lord saying no. And then I, after that, I thought, well, maybe the Lord would confirm through the people if enough godly people were given the opportunity to speak. So I said, I said to the elders, why don't you ask the people if they sense God is wanting me to step in for a short term? And they said, sure, we'll do it. And it came back 100%. I took that as the Lord saying, you need to fill the gap, make up the hedge. So I did. I was totally uh, raw, green, had no clue what I was doing, but day and night labored and just gave, I spent so much time on my knees praying, seeking God, and God was gracious and God was good. And we saw the church just start to turn a corner, even for the, that six-month period. The elders came back and said, we want you to be the next pastor. And I said, hmm, I don't know about that. They said, well, if we put it to vote, we think the vote would be very strong. And you know that churches vote. I'm not against that if the Lord is leading the vote. And, but I said, well, I need to pray. And I prayed with Rini about that because this last six months had changed everything in our lives. And... Uh, and at the end of that season of prayer, uh, I said, I'm willing, but I still think the people should have an opportunity. Those who are seeking God, I'd like to hear what the Lord's saying through them. And I wasn't going to the people to get them to agree with me to make me the pastor. I was actually going and saying, maybe they'll let me off the hook. <laughs> I mean, that honestly, that's where I was at that time. This was overwhelming to me. And... The only way I would ever take it on was if I knew God was doing this. And it was a 98% vote among the people. I, I entered that role truly believing God opened that door. It was the Lord doing it. I, would, I had no desire to be a senior pastor. Interestingly enough, um, about a month before that senior pastor that I worked with in Palm Beach Gardens left to go back to school, actually before he announced that he was going back to school, uh, I got a call from Tom Bates, pastor at First Church of God in Bureau. And he said, I, Greg, I'd like for you to come up. We'd love to have you on our staff. They, I came up to Vero Beach, spent the weekend, a long weekend here, Rini and I both, and had a wonderful time really loved the young people that were in the church. Uh, they were asking me to be the youth pastor, and we also got to meet a lot of parents and people. And, uh, but on our way back to Palm Beach, just an hour south, at the end of that three days, I don't understand why, but the Lord said, no, I'm not in it. I said, Rini, what are you, without telling her what I was thinking, I said, honey, what's your sense? 
it was exactly the same as, as what I experienced. And I'm glad I didn't try to push. See, Gardens was a church of about 350. At that time, I think First Church was around a, close to 1,000 a, a or so, 800 to 1,000 at that time. Flesh would have said, dude, jump on it. But Spirit said, don't exalt yourself. Let the Lord do the exalting. So recently I met with Tom Bates. He was in town. We were talking. And he said, do you remember that I tried to hire you away from Palm Beach Gardens and you told me no? <laughs> and I said, no, the Lord told you no. <laughs> and the Lord told me no. And he laughed. We had a good kick out of that. So when we try to exalt, what ends up happening is now going forward, those who are under us are being led by us, not by God. You have just assumed a role that God has not given you. You can take this and you can put it in any, any role, any type of leadership position of any, you know, secular, whatever, it doesn't matter. You want to only allow the Lord to raise you up. Okay? It needs to be the Lord. So, Psalm 75, verse 6, write it down. Psalm 75, verse 6 and 7. For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up. Lifting up does not come from the east or the west. does not come from the wilderness. But it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. You want the Lord's choice. Amen? You want God to win. God, is, God knows what's best for His church, not man. James 4.10 we all know this one. Humble yourself before the Lord, and He will exalt you. Now, what's interesting in that passage is not just that He does the exalting. What's interesting is He actually says to you and I, humble yourself. You don't want the Lord to humble you. God is saying to you, I'm giving you the opportunity to humble Humble yourself. And when you humble yourself, this is what it looks like. You follow whatever I say, and I will do the lifting, and I'll do the putting down. You just be obedient and follow me. Don't complain about it. Just have joy in your heart that God is in control. Amen? Amen. So verse 5 in our text, And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. <laughs> so he's going to go ahead and put out the image that he is the king. He had this good marketing campaign in place. He, he would present himself as the king. He hoped that if he presented it well, people would believe it, that it would go from just a figment of imagination in his mind to a reality in the minds of people. 2 Samuel 15, verse 1, write it down. 2 Samuel 15, verse 1. After this, listen, hey, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Both Adonijah and Absalom came from David. David was a poor father, did not discipline his boys as he should. So the older brother did it a certain way, and now the young brother is going to follow and copy the playbook of his brother. Look what it says. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. Absalom tried to take over the throne from David. Now his brother Adonijah is doing the exact same thing. 
And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. I'm going to act as if I'm the one that's king. And that's what this, his brother's doing. Verse 6, his father had never at any time displeased him. Another way to say that is his father never confronted him and corrected him. David never confronted or corrected Adonijah. He never asked, why have you done thus and so? He, all, he was also a very handsome man, and he was born next after Absalom. So here's what Adonijah has to go on. I'm good looking. People think I can do it just because of my looks. I never, I don't, what are you talking about? I did it the wrong way. What are you talking about that uh, I can get whatever I want when I want it? And his dad never knocked that out of him. His dad should have, mm, what the thing's going on with you right now, boy? Put some sense back in that boy. Never did. So now you've created a monster. Again. This is not the first time. His father had never at any time displeased him by asking, why have you done thus and so? So it's hard to understand how a man like David, I, I, I thought about, contemplated this when I was studying. A man like David who has a heart after God, who's written these beautiful songs, who has such great wisdom and insight, how does he miss it on such a simple part of being a father? I don't understand it. it. makes no sense to me. I don't get it. You think about the, what even in Psalm, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, Psalm 23, 4, uh, he talks about the correcting rod. He never practiced it. All, all, all talk, no show. Proverbs 29, 17, discipline your son and he will give you rest. He will give you delight to your heart. David understands that. Still didn't practice it. You know, I guess what the takeaway is, instead of just judging David, each of us can look back and say, you know what, there's been seasons where I knew what was right and I didn't practice it either. You know, one of the faults of, of, parents, of parents is that, especially today, parents are unwilling to make sacrifices in their life in order to discipline their children. In other words, if you are willing to discipline your children, it's going to cost you something as a parent to do it. It just is. I have a friend, he's a good friend, and he had a teenage son who went out and did silly things. And the father said, you don't get to drive for two weeks. This boy went to school across town. The father had a very high-profile, stressful job. And for two weeks, he had to drive that boy to school and go pick him up every day. It cost that father a lot to properly discipline his son. Yes. Yes. But parents don't want to take that step because they're selfish. That's going to cost me too much. 
I don't want to inconvenience my life because they did something they shouldn't have done. And so we don't love our kids enough to discipline them. I see that today, and it, it really concerns me. To be a faithful steward of God as a parent, it should cost you. It used to be sacrifice for the children. Today, sacrifice the children. Verse 7, he conferred with Joab, the son of Zeruah, Zeruah, I'm sorry, and with Abathar, the priest, and they followed Adonijah and helped him. So these are two of David's men. Joab was his commander. Abathar was one of the priests, but they went with Adonijah. And so David's general, his chief general, and one of his high priests both supported Adonijah. Uh, Interestingly, it doesn't say that they consulted the Lord or David in giving their support to his unworthy son. They just went with what they thought would be right. These two men were once trusted associates. Joab may have sought revenge for David's choice of Amasa over him as the captain or the chief of the army. And because Benaniah was now more in an authority role as a military leader, uh, maybe, maybe Joab was ticked off about that, and so he went with Adonijah. Verse 8, But Zadok the priest and Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, and Nathan the prophet, and Shimei, and Ray, and David's mighty men were not with Adonijah. So while two of them went with Adonijah, the majority of his council did not. Fortunately, there are some prominent people in Israel who didn't support Adonijah. Verse 9, Adonijah sacrificed sheep, oxen, and fattened calf, cattle by the serpent stone, which is beside Enrogel. And he invited all his brothers, the king's sons, and all the royal officials of Judah. But he did not invite Nathan the prophet, or Benaniah, or the mighty men, or Solomon his brother. So now he's going to have this big sacrifice like he's the big guy, he's the king, he's got the 50 soldiers walking out in front, he's got the chariot, he's, he thinks he's king. He has claimed the throne while his dad's still alive. His dad doesn't know anything about this, by the way. And now he's got these two men with him, and he goes and he makes this sacrifice to God. Talk about a joke, false worship. He's burning the fat of these animals as a sacrifice to the Lord, and he used the meat to hold a dinner, honoring the blessings. And blessing, he's blessing his, his supporters. But here again, Adonijah is playing a role. He's building an image. He's trying to convince people to take him as king. Verse 11, Then Nathan said to Bathsheba, who is the mother of Solomon, Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king? And David, our Lord, does not know it. Now, therefore, come, let me give you advice that you may save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. Go in at once to King David and say to him, Did you not, my Lord the king, swear to your servant, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne? By the way, that statement is not a lie. The problem is we don't have record of it in the Bible that David actually said that to Bathsheba. But 
most scholars believe it was said. Uh, he goes, and I'll tell you why in just a second. Why then is Adonijah king? Asking David. She's asking, why is Adonijah king? And then while you are still speaking with the king, I also will come in, this is Nathan, after you and confirm your words. So this really goes to show how far removed David is in his state as an invalid. He doesn't even have a clue what's going on. He wasn't even aware that, 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 that his own son had claimed the kingdom. Uh, when it says that you may save your own life and the life of your son, obviously we all know what that means. When somebody in the family takes the, the kingdom, if there's anybody else that might become a threat, you eliminate them. So had Adonijah become the king, he probably would have killed uh, Solomon and his mother. By the way, while we don't have the specific promise, we do have, turn if you want, or just write it down for sake of time, 1 Chronicles 22.5. We don't have the promise that David made to Bathsheba, but here's what we have. 1 Chronicles 22.25, it says, For David said, Solomon my son is young and inexperienced, and the house that is to be built for the Lord must be exceedingly magnificent of fame and glory throughout all lands. I will therefore make preparation for it. This is when David realized, God said, you will not build a tabernacle for me, a temple for me. Your son will build the temple. David doesn't say one of my sons is too young. He says Solomon is too young. By the way, Solomon's not the oldest. Adonijah is. And so he's David saying... Solomon's too young to have the ability, he doesn't have the change in his pocket to go to the people and gather the resources to build the temple. I'm going to do that for him. But he will build the temple. That's what the Lord had told him, that there, his son would build the temple. So we do know that at some point, somewhere, it's very likely that this was a promise. This is not a lie, okay? Verse 14, then while you are still speaking with the king, I also will come in and after you and confirm your words. So, Nate, by the way, understand this. Nathan's not coming in to David's chamber while Bathsheba is talking in order to somehow say, no, you did say that Solomon uh, would be the next king. That's not what he's doing. He's coming in to say, it's true, Adonijah has claimed to be the king. He's affirming that he wants, why? Because David is a softy with his kids. Oh, that can't be true. Adonijah wouldn't do that. Nathan says, David, it is true. David and Nathan were trusted friends. Now, they went through a tough spell when Nathan confronted David with his sin with Bathsheba. But, but David came to realize that Nathan was right. He respected him for standing up to David. Don't you love that? Don't you love the friend that you have? I'm not saying it's easy in the moment, but when you have a friend who loves you enough to say to you, do you know I love you? Yeah, I know you love me. You're my good friend. Well, there's something that I want to share with you that concerns me. And they, they ask questions. What, what, what did you mean by? Or why did you do? And they get you to think. That's a real friend, right? Yeah. 
And what happens when you have real friends is, at times, sparks fly. But what comes out of that? Iron sharpens iron. If, you're, if you wear your feelings on your shoulder and you just can't take it when somebody disagrees with you, even your close friends, and you kind of push them off, you're never going to be used of God in a significant way. Because God has put those people in your life to help you become more conformed to the image of Jesus. Don't, don't be so quick to discount what your friends are saying. Listen. And then go and pray about it and ask the Lord, is what they said true of me? Look at the scripture. What does it say? Oh my goodness, I didn't see it. Well, thank your friend for being in your blind spot and telling you about it. Amen? Amen. Okay. So, verse 15, so Bathsheba went to the king in his chamber. Now the king was very old. Look at that. Very old. <laughs> 70. Hey, that's way back then. Today, 70 is nothing. Amen. Amen. That's it. Okay. 90 is the new 70. Okay, here we go. Uh, and Abishag, the Shunammite, was attending to the king. This is reiterated to, again, I think, remind us of David's limited capacities and capabilities as king. Bathsheba, verse 16, bowed and paid homage to the king, and the king said, What do you desire? And she said to him, My lord, you swore to your servant by the Lord your God, saying, Solomon your son shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne. And now, behold, Adonijah is king, although you, my lord, the king, do not know it. He has sacrificed oxen, fattened cattle, and sheep in abundance, and has invited all the sons of the king, Abathiah the priest, Joab the commander of the army, but Solomon your servant he has not invited. And now, my lord the king, the eyes of all Israel are on you to tell them who shall sit on the throne of my lord and the king after him. Otherwise, it will come to pass when my lord the king sleeps with his fathers, that I and my son Solomon will be counted offenders. While she was still speaking with the king, Nathan the prophet came in, and they told the, and they told the king, Here is Nathan the prophet. And when he came in before the king, he bowed before the king with his face to the ground. And Nathan said, My lord the king, have you said, have you said, Adonijah shall reign after me and shall... He shall sit on my throne, for he has gone down to this day and has sacrificed oxen, fattened cattle, and sheep in abundance, and has invited all of the king's sons, the commanders of the army, Abathiah the priest. And behold, they are eating and drinking before him and saying, Long live King Adonijah. He's not making any of this up. This is really happening. But me, your servant... And Zadok the priest, and Benaniah the son of Jehoiada, and your servant Solomon, he has not invited. Has this thing been brought about by my lord the king, and you have not told your servants who should sit on the throne of my lord the king after him? Notice Nathan simply stated the facts and then asked the question. He's not trying to manipulate David. He really is just trying to get David to have a clear mind 
and to answer the question the best he can. Then King David answered, Call Bathsheba to me. So she came into the king's presence and stood before the king, and the king swore, saying, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my soul out of every adversity, as I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me. Now David is saying, I had already told you that, even though we can't find it in the scripture. And he shall sit on my throne in my place. Even so will I do this day. Today, Solomon will sit on the throne, my throne. So, but let's not miss something here that I think is so beautiful. As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my soul out of every adversity. Many of the adversities that David faced were brought on by himself. And then there were others that were brought on like King Saul, right? But it didn't matter. Whether it was his own sinfulness or whether it was somebody else's revenge or bitterness, God re- David said, God has redeemed me out of all of it. Redeemed redeemed. This is the Old Testament. We're not talking about a sin that he was redeemed from. Sins were atoned for. They were covered. We're talking about wrong choices, going my own way, being under the influence of others who were out to harm me. But my God redeemed me in every single situation. He's there on that bed and he's saying, I can't look back and find a single time that God has not used my own failures or the bitterness brought upon me from others, that he has not used it for my good. Wow, what a great way to approach trials. What a great way. Uh, a lot of times some Christians mistakenly think that God is going to somehow give them divine immunity from problems when they get saved. Uh, (laughs) Not. A child of God faces the same unsettling situations that other people face. Sometimes we can explain why the other person faces it But because we were faithful to God, we have no clue why we're facing it. It's the truth. But everybody faces trials. Everybody, whether you're saved or unsaved, faces problems and setbacks. Everybody suffers. Everybody hurts. Everybody has pain and problems. But God delivers the Christian out of all of them. That's the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. It isn't that a Christian doesn't have problems because they have just as much as the ungodly. Sometimes even more. God said to Paul, when he, Saul, when he was first saved, he said, hey, you're going to suffer many things for my namesake. That is a calling to suffer. Isaac bedridden for 11 years. David, the man with a heart after God, an invalid. 
And yet that man laying there as an invalid is saying, God has redeemed me from everything that I've ever faced. Being a child of God does not give any kind of protection against problems, against life's battles. If you think that being a Christian means that life is just going to be a cakewalk on a bed of roses, you are in for a rude awakening. You're going to live in a state of discouragement because life is filled with problems. And if you think God's delivering you, you're never going to be happy. But a Christian can know that I will face what others face, what the difference is. My God will deliver me. He will redeem me. You keep your head up. You walk a straight line with God and you rejoice over the fact that you know God and that He is a redeemer. And not just of the problems, but of your soul. You can't lose with God. I, I just think it's so wonderful that David says this in this time. So that was David's glorious testimony. He said this at the end of his life. He's come to the end of the road and he says, As the Lord lives who has redeemed my soul out of every adversity. What a testimony. Verse 31, Then Bathsheba bowed her face to the ground and paid homage to the king and said, May the Lord uh, King David live forever. And King David said, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaniah the son of Jehoiada. By the way, those were the three prominent leaders in Israel who did not support Adonijah as king. David knew who his loyal friends really were. So they came before the king, and the king said to them, Take with you the, the, the servants of your lord, and have Solomon my son ride on my own mule, and bring him down to Gihon. And let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him king over Israel. Then blow the trumpet and say, Long live King Solomon. That's a rare glimpse, by the way, of all three offices in cooperation. You've got prophet, priest, and king working together. That didn't happen very often in the Old Testament, but here it happens. And guess what? In the New Testament, you are prophet, priest, and king in glory. You will reign with Christ. Amen? Amen? Wow. Verse 35, you shall then come up after him, and he shall come and sit on my throne, for he shall, not, or, for he shall be king in my place. And I have appointed him to be the ruler over Israel and over Judah. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, answered the king, Amen. May the Lord, the God of my Lord, the king, say so. And as the Lord has been with my Lord, the king, even so may he be with Solomon and make his throne greater than the throne of my Lord David. You'd think David would be offended by that. He was not. David wanted the proclamation of Solomon as successor to be persuasive. So he did five things. He, he called out five things here. Number one, let him ride on my own mule, which, by the way, was a royal mule. I don't know if you've ever seen a royal mule, but kings rode mules. They didn't ride horses. They loved to ride mules. Why? Because the mule, the one thing about a mule is they're more intelligent than a horse. You say, no way. You, they are. They will do everything in their power to be safe. If you go to the Grand Canyon, you take a mule ride down into the canyon. They will not put themselves in harm's way. To you, it'll look like they're stubborn. 
I'm just telling you. Kings rode mules. Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a mule. Okay? I just think that's interesting. Secondly, let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him. Saul and David had been anointed by Samuel, the Lord's priest and prophet. Solomon was also to be recognized by priest and prophet, just like David. Blow the horn. The blowing of the trumpet signaled, uh, it signaled a public assembly where the people corporately recognized Solomon's new status as the co-regent with and successor to David. Say, long live the king. Shout it out. Long live the king. What king? King Solomon. David's saying this. He shall come and sit on my throne. These are all steps that David himself has put in place to make sure that the people of Israel or of Judah recognize Solomon as the king. By the way, did you know that God is just as concerned that we know that we are destined for the throne? That He sent Jesus to die on the cross for you? That you might be His child? That you might one day reign with Christ? That you one day will be higher than the angels in heaven? You're higher now. You just, you just can't do what they do. But, I mean, that's how special you are to God. And by the way, on a human level, Solomon's reign was indeed greater than David's. But on a spiritual, eternal level, it wasn't. But in terms of facility and building and, 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 and uh, uh, money, Sol nobody was greater than Solomon. So what David asked for, God gave. So Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaniah the son of Jehoiada, and the Cherethites and the Pelethites went down and had Solomon ride on King David's mule and brought him into Gihon. The Zadok, there Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. And then they blew the trumpet and all the people said, Long live King Solomon. And all the people went up after him playing on pipes and rejoicing with great joy so that the earth was split by their noise. Wow. Adonijah and all the guests who were with him heard it as they finished feasting. So they got this own little feast, this little fake feast going on, that he's the king, you know, off to the side. And they hear this loud shout coming from Israel. They're like, what the heck was that? And when Joab heard the sound of the trumpet, he said, what does the uproar in the city mean? And while he was still speaking, behold, Jonathan, the son of Abathir, Abiathar, the priest uh, came. And when Adonijah said, Come in, for you are a worthy man, and bring good news. Jonathan answered Adonijah, No, for our Lord King David has made Solomon king. And the king has sent with him Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaniah the son of Jehoiada, and the Cher uh, Cherethites and the Pelethites. That was a special force of men who had great uh, respect by the people. And they had him ride on the king's mule. And Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet have anointed him king of, uh, at Gihon. And ha they have gone up from, uh, from their rejoicing so that the city is in an uproar. This is the noise that you have heard. Solomon sits on the royal throne. Gee, talk about a party killer. <laughs> Moreover, the king's servant came to congratulate our Lord King David, saying, May your God make the name of Solomon more famous than yours and make his throne greater than your, than your throne. And the king bowed himself on the bed. Wow. 
And the king also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who has promised someone to sit on my throne this day, my own eyes seeing it. Then all the guests of Adonijah trembled and rose, and each went his own way. Talk about quiet. And Adonijah feared Solomon, as he should. So he arose and went and took hold of the horns of the altar. That would be the altar that they made the sacrifice on. And then it was told Solomon, Behold, Adonijah fears King Solomon, for behold, he has laid, laid hold of the horns of the altar, saying, Let King Solomon swear to me first that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. By the way, the horns uh, were the corner projections that came off of that altar, okay? They didn't come off. I mean, he was holding on to them and uh, where the blood sacrifices were made. And by holding on to the horns of the altar, Adonijah was seeking to place himself under the protection of God. That's what he's doing. He has such a great fear of Solomon now. In verse 52, And Solomon said, If he will show himself a worthy man, not one of his hairs shall fall to the earth. But if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. So King Solomon sent, and they brought him down from the altar. And he came and paid homage to King Solomon. And Solomon said to him, Go to your house. Wow. Good stuff, huh? Kings is one story after another that are just dramatic, I mean, epic in terms of the nation of Israel and, and the relationship to God and how God works in and among his people. Much here for us to learn from and practice in our own lives. Would you agree? Yes. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this wonderful evening. Thank you for these wonderful friends and family. And that's really what we are. We're a family. And we welcome and thank each person for coming. But Lord, we thank you for being present. You came with us. You are here. You have taught us by the Holy Spirit. And now, Lord, may we practice and live out what we have learned. May we be reminded of the one thing that tonight the Holy Spirit is trying to, to get us to understand or see. And may we walk in it. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Praise God. All right. Folks, we'll see you next Wednesday night right here.